Well, good morning. I trust you all have had a, a good week. It's been a, a rainy and stormy one in our afternoons with our humidity that is set in here in the midst of summer. It's good to see so many faces. I know with summer travels, we miss a few of you. And so it's good to see you back with us this morning. Well, this morning will be the conclusion to our sixth and final week in our summer series through the book of Jonah. If you think about it, this has been a strange book. It's been a strange prophet. A prophet of God who attempted to flee from his responsibilities, to run from God. There's never been a prophet like him. There has not been a prophet like him since. A prophet who preferred death over prayer. Death over acknowledging his sin. A prophet who wishes that the recipients of his message, the people to whom he is to deliver his message, he hopes they do not respond. And when they do, he hopes that it is short-lived and they are still judged. It's a prophet who gets angry at God. A prophet we saw last week and we'll see again this morning is more like us than we care to admit. And yet despite all that we observe about Jonah and Nineveh, this story is really not about them, is it? The primary concern within the book of Jonah is what happens when the word of God comes. When God's word enters human history, what happens? It's the story of all the prophets throughout the Old Testament. When God's word enters human history, what happens? And that's why this little book with this little prophet is so important for us today. God's word has come. A message has been proclaimed to us. And so the book of Jonah invites us to ask, how will I respond to the word of the Lord? With that said, let's read the final verses of Jonah chapter 4. If you haven't already turned there, turn there with me in your Bible. Beginning in verse 4, the Lord says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down upon Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Well, let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning to hear the word that was delivered through Jonah and to Jonah and at times at Jonah, 
Father, I pray that you will give us ears to hear, to understand what it is that you desire for us to learn. This word has been preserved for us, that we might respond to the word of the Lord that has come. Help us to do that this morning. Help us to understand the significance of this word to our lives. In your name, amen. Well, as we've already read, the curtain opens on the second scene of this fourth and final act in the book of Jonah. And as the curtain opens, Jonah has his back to us as he angrily stomps out of the city. Jonah's response to God's question in verse 4 was to stomp out of the city in angry silence. He has no answer because he has no right to be angry. He has no good reason, but he won't acknowledge it. So when all reason and logic fail, Jonah resorts to the age-old sinful response of anger and protest. In addition to his anger, like chapter 1, Jonah again goes silent as he flees the city. And the remainder of chapter 4 that we're going to look at this morning is God's gracious efforts at restoring and saving this prodigal prophet. God will use an extended object lesson along with probing questions aimed at extracting repentance from Jonah. And the question before each of us this morning is this. As we observe Jonah, as we observe the Lord going after him time and time again as we've seen through this book, as he lays this object lesson before Jonah, the question before us is, will you repent? Now before you say, I'm not Jonah, I would never have done this. I look nothing like Jonah. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been jealous of someone? Have you ever thought that's not fair? Have you ever begrudged God's blessing on someone else, someone you felt didn't deserve it? Have you ever questioned God's work in your life? Have you ever wondered why God has spared other persons? Why his judgment hasn't come? Why he hasn't wiped them off the face of the earth? Have you ever thought, why me? If you've thought any of these questions or questions similar to this, this message is for you. It's for me. Not only because it calls you and me to repent when these sinful responses arise, but because it will also encourage us. It will encourage us as we are reminded of God's relentless pursuit of Jonah, this prodigal prophet. You see, God has not stopped pursuing his children, and he will pursue them, sometimes painfully, in order to restore them into right relationship with him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's turn our attention back to Jonah, or to Jonah's back, as that's all we see here as it opens. Jonah's response is passive-aggressive at best. His non-answer in verse 5, his departure from the city is a rejection of the right answer. It's a rejection of what has been spoken to him. It's a response really to conviction. It's really it's a response that we are probably all too familiar with. We've been in that place where we feel that conviction. We know what we're doing is wrong. We know we don't have an answer for our actions, but we're not ready to repent. Instead, we dig our heels in. Silence seems the safest answer. And yet, as with Jonah, it is a response. Jonah's silence doubles down on his conviction that Nineveh should burn. And as already noted, yet again we find Jonah fleeing from the word of the Lord. Like Adam and Eve exiled to the east of Eden because of their sin, Jonah 
exiles himself to the east in his burning anger so that he might see what happens to the city. Waiting. Hoping. The first time Jonah fled, he saw shelter in a ship headed to Tarshish. This time as he flees, he seeks refuge in a hastily built temporary shelter called a booth. Not much more than a lean-to shelter. Now as Jonah sits there on the hills east of Nineveh looking over this great city, I cannot help but ask myself, what was Jonah waiting for? What did he think was going to happen? Had God not already said that he had showed compassion at the end of chapter 3? Had God not already said that he had shown mercy to these people because of their repentance? Is that not why Jonah is angry to begin with? Well, Jonah is looking and he is hoping for a short-lived or temporary repentance on the part of Nineveh, such that God would be forced to deal with them harshly. Perhaps he thought that before the 40 days were up, they would return to their old ways, or that after escaping God's wrath at the end of 40 days, they would quickly forget and revert to their old ways, their old patterns, their old wicked ways. Jonah wanted to be right. He wanted God to be proven wrong. He wants to be justified for his angry response. So he sits, bitter and angry, in hopeful anticipation of the downfall of Nineveh. Instead of praying for their perseverance in this newfound repentance, instead of teaching them the ways of God, he hopes they fail. That he might be proven right. His arrogance, his selfishness is so important to him that he would rather be proven right than over 120,000 persons be spared. He wants God proven wrong and misguided for showing grace, compassion, and mercy to such an undeserving, wicked people as these Ninevites. Now you might begin to wonder at this point, how much longer is God going to put up with Jonah? The problem is, the moment you or I ask that, we've become Jonah. I don't think any of us want to look too long at Jonah here. We don't want to slow down. We want to speed up over this section. Because there's a fear that we're going to find ourselves here. Or find in ourselves Jonah. There have been times where we would rather see the downfall of someone than their salvation and their mercy being shown, where we want to be justified in our anger, in our sinful response. We want to be able to say, see God, I told you so. Where the king of Nineveh had stepped down from his throne and sat in ashes in chapter 3, Jonah goes east, sets himself up on this hill over the city as judge, jury, and wannabe executioner. And we too quickly imitate this in our lives. At the risk of drawing my bow too far, there's a greater prophet who arrived on hills overlooking another city, a wicked city, a city that would soon perpetrate the most wicked and egregious murder in human history. And yet as this prophet, this great prophet, looked over a city filled with wickedness, a city that would murder him, he wept. He felt great compassion and mercy. 
You see, this is the example to emulate. This is the contrast that is being drawn between the failures of Jonah as a prophet and the one who was greater than Jonah, the great prophet who would come, Jesus Christ. More than a prophet, the Son of God. The example of Christ who felt compassion, mercy, and sadness over the people in the city that would cry out, what? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And yet we have Jonah. Just as Jonah could not flee God's presence by boarding a ship, he cannot flee God's presence by going east of Nineveh, hiding in this lean-to shelter. And so God enters the scene here in verse 6 and begins an object lesson. And he does so by, again, reaching into the realms of nature to appoint and providentially direct his creation. This is the fourth time God has done this in this short book of Jonah. First, the Lord hurled a great wind against the sea. Next, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Then the Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah on dry land. Now, the Lord appoints a plant to grow up overnight in Jack and the Beanstalk fashion to serve as shade for Jonah. You see, just as Adam and Eve and their sin were woefully inadequate in their attempts at clothing, so Jonah appears to be woefully inadequate in his ability to build adequate shade and shelter from the heat. So once again, we find, as we so do so often in Scripture, that God provides. But notice carefully the language of verse 6. Specifically, the purpose clause, or the proximate reason, that is the nearest reason, for the plant growing. For its sudden appearance and growth. The text says there in verse 6, to deliver him from his discomfort. Or depending upon your translation, it might be from his misery or from his grief. Now, if you were to look at the Hebrew word behind the term translated, discomfort, misery, or grief, you would encounter the Hebrew term ra'ah. Ra'ah is the same term that we have for evil or wickedness that we've been seeing all throughout the book of Jonah. This term is what has what we might call a wide semantic range. That is, depending upon context, it can mean something as benign as annoyance or discomfort, all the way to extreme evil and wickedness. It's not all that different than our word bad. The word bad, which in some contexts could be something almost humorous, and in others, something downright heinous. In this context, what's interesting about the use of this word, especially following on the heels of Jonah's observing Nineveh's mercy becoming a great evil for him, that is the term ra'ah, and him leaving with this great evil burning within him, is that we have a bit of a double entendre, where the term ra'ah is used to highlight both the proximate, that is the near cause or reason, and the ultimate reason for sending the plant. The immediate cause is to provide relief from the discomfort or misery of the hot sun, but there's an ultimate reason. There's an object lesson being built here, being fashioned. And the ultimate reason for the plant and the shade is to rescue, to save Jonah from his great evil, wickedness, and anger. You see, even the word to deliver him from his discomfort. That word deliver is the same word often translated as to save. And so we see here, even in the giving of shade to save him from his discomfort, God's purpose is to save him from his evil 
wicked way. And this ultimate reason governs all that transpires through the end of this chapter through verse 11. Well, Jonah, oblivious to anything other than his own comfort, feelings, and emotions, is extremely happy about this plant. He is insensible to the spiritual lesson being constructed around him, and this becomes readily apparent in verse 7. In verse 7, God divinely directs nature for a fifth time. This time, it's one of the smallest of his creations, a worm. And he directs this worm to attack the plant the very next day, just as Jonah was getting used to the comfort and the shade. Now, I know attack here almost certainly means to eat at it, but I can't help imagine some small worm gearing up to go and attack this plant. This is the moment he's been training for all his life. And this worm executes that task to perfection, wreaks havoc so that before the sun has risen far in the sky, the plant has withered and no longer provides protection and shade to Jonah. Contrary to Jonah, who has failed over and over and over again when appointed for a task, a worm, a measly worm, can accomplish with perfection what God has appointed it to do. And yet God is not done with the object lesson, nor with the divine appointment of creation. In verse 8, now for the sixth time, God divinely directs. This time, it's a scorching east wind. An east wind is frequently used to describe God's judgment. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 13, Moses stretched his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night, and it was morning. The east wind brought the locusts. Psalm 48, 7, with the east wind you break the ships of Tarshish, those deep and strong ships. Ezekiel 17.10, Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it? Or Hosea 13.15, Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come. The wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness and his fountain will become dry. His spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. In this final scene in the book of Jonah, for the second time, God hurls a great wind against Jonah's shelter. First a ship, now a lean-to. Like the ship that was breaking up before the wind and the storm, which could not protect him from God's discipline, so his shelter will not protect him from the judgment and discipline of God here. In fact, given the statement concerning the sun beating down on Jonah's head, it appears that his man-made efforts at comfort have crumpled around him before the wind of God. He has no shade left to him. Well, if it hasn't become apparent yet in our study through Jonah, I want to let you in on a little secret. Jonah is not a righteous man. He did not respond as Job did, who was righteous and said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. No, for a second time, Jonah seeks death rather than repentance before the creator of the heavens, the sea, and the dry land. He would rather die than humble himself and ask for mercy, rather than cry out to the Lord for salvation. Here Jonah is, picture this, watching, waiting, 
hoping to prove God wrong. See God forced to destroy and burn this city. All the while, Jonah is being burned up by the scorching east wind, by the hot sun beating down upon him, and yet he is utterly oblivious to the irony and the disciplining hand of God that's going on. There's really here an implicit, maybe not so implicit, reminder to us not to miss God's work of discipline in our lives. His work of calling us in our lives. His work of correction in our lives. His work of instruction in our lives. Understand, discipline is certainly there for correction. We're certainly seeing that with Jonah. But not all discipline is punitive. We discipline ourselves for sports. We discipline ourselves to be able to go on long hikes and enjoy creation and nature. Discipline is necessary for growth. School is a discipline. But it's necessary and it's good. This is why the writer of James says what at the beginning of James? Consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing, that is the disciplining of your faith, produces endurance. And yes, as the writer of Hebrews says, there is times where the disciplining of the Lord is more painful and is correction, correction for obvious and immediate unrepentant sin. But the reminder here is not to be so self-centered, so focused on ourselves, so concerned with us, me, I, and my, that we miss God's work in our lives. You understand this is why we're instructed throughout the New Testament not to grumble and complain. It's not just because it's a bad thing to do. Yes, it's bad. Yes, it puts you in a sour mood. Yes, nobody wants to hang out with you. But that's not the main point. The main point is that you're missing what God is doing in your life when you grumble and complain. You miss what he's doing, the work that is being worked in you. You're fighting against God. God's discipline is always for good. And while Jonah has not cried out to anyone in particular while begging to die, God goes ahead and answers. He's the only one around, so it makes sense that he answers. And he answers with a question. It's a familiar sounding question. Though Jonah has continued to ignore God, he has refused to answer God's question from verse 4. God again approaches Jonah. And again, notice the care and compassion of God in pursuing this prodigal prophet. We would have long given up on Jonah. Let's just be honest with that. We would have long ago given up on him. But God pursues him. He asked Jonah again the question he asked Jonah while he was in the city. The question that sent Jonah stomping out of the room. Do you have a right to be angry? The difference is that this time, God is not asking about the city. He's asking about the plant. And this time, Jonah answers. Fascinating. Disturbing, but fascinating. When it comes to the lives of people, Jonah will ignore God. But when it comes to a plant, he'll engage. What a strange prophet this is. Well, Jonah's answer is not really surprising. He is fully justified in his own eyes. In his eyes, he has every right to be angry. And that is precisely the answer God expected from Jonah. 
there's something God does here that is worth noting and worth emulating in our relationships. You can put this in parentheses. This is offered for free this morning. When addressing sin, when working with persons, when working through disagreements and arguments, ask questions. Not a how dare you type question, but those that help to peel back what is going on. Unlike God, we are not omniscient. So it's best to start by asking questions about the situation itself, to see where we might have incorrect or imperfect knowledge before drawing final conclusions. There's something about asking questions that God has ingrained within us that we respond differently. It's the way we're wired. We respond differently. That's why you see God do it over and over and over and over again. What did he do the very first sin? Adam and Eve, where are you? Who told you? He asks questions. This forces him, and it forces Jonah to come face to face with the reality, to acknowledge his own selfishness. And as common sense as this practice should be, as we all know, common sense is not so common. Well, the object lesson reaches its climax in verse 10. God here demonstrates his reason for the fast-growing plant, the fierce worm, and the scorching wind. Jonah has answered God's question and laid himself bare. He is undeniably selfish and self-centered. God has exposed Jonah through these questions, through this circumstance, through this object lesson. Jonah, Jonah does not want Nineveh to experience unmerited mercy. Though he himself willingly accepted this unmerited grace when thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish. And when a plant grew up overnight as shade. You see, Jonah is like, if I can use this illustration, he's like Ptolemy. You remember Ptolemy, the astronomer, the, that Egyptian astronomer who, he worked out a system of our solar system that mistakenly put Earth at the center with everything revolving around the Earth. It was some 1,400 laters that the Polish astronomer, Copernicus, argued correctly that our solar system, our planets, revolve not around the earth, not around us, but around the sun. Jonah, like Ptolemy, thinks everything revolves around him. And God is forcing him to see that it revolves not around Jonah, not around some nation, but around God. See, Jonah needs to become more like Copernicus, recognizing that it doesn't all revolve around me. The case God has been setting up here is from the lesser to the greater. I mean, really, who, who could really care for a plant more than a person? In this case, not just one person, but an entire city with over 120,000 persons, not to mention all the animals. And so the question that's hanging in the air is, why, Jonah? Why? Why do you show care and concern for something that was so fleeting that came up and disappeared in less than 48 hours? And yet, Jonah, you think God is acting unjustly by not quickly destroying people whom he formed and fashioned in his own image. Why do you think God should act quickly and decisively with them when he has been so patient with you? Know, too, God's description of these persons. Not knowing the difference between their right and their left hand. Now, on the surface, that sounds really mean and sarcastic. But that's not it at all. This is an idiom. 
It's a figure of speech. It's an idiom that Jonah would have immediately understood because it was a reference to moral ignorance. They're still culpable and guilty of wickedness over which they have repented at this point. But God points out that they were ignorant of how to please him, specifically with regard to his law. Their conscience may have condemned them, but they did not have God's law like Jonah did. The phrase right and left is a common reference to departing from the law of God. For example, Deuteronomy 5, 32. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. Deuteronomy 17, 11. According to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do, you shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. Joshua 23, 6. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the, you know it by now, the right or to the left. Proverbs 4, 27. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. St. Chronicles 34, 2. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Put simply, as one scholar noted, morally and ethically, these Ninevites were like children. And yet Jonah wanted fiery condemnation and destruction brought down upon them. So God is asking Jonah, do you really want me to destroy these for not knowing the full extent of their wickedness? Yeah, they knew they were wicked. They knew there was something to repent of when the message came. But you see, they did not have the knowledge Jonah did. They did not know how wicked they really were. It's not that they did not sin. It's not that they're without guilt. But should we not be more prone to show grace and mercy towards those who understand less and know less? I look at the world around us. Unfortunately, so much of it is represented in social media. And I get the feeling that we're more like Jonah in our responses. It's the people who don't know more, who truly do know less. Maybe they knew more than the Ninevites, but they still know less. These are the ones we're quick to condemn. We want to see fiery judgment brought down. Encouraged to pray those imprecatory, those judgmental psalms against them. I've seen recently believers, pastors, calling for us to call down fiery judgment on these persons. That's disheartening because it runs counter to the message of Jonah. It's not that God will not judge. It is not that God does not hate evil. He does. He hates wickedness. But you see, what God is able to do that we cannot is he is able to hold in perfect harmony that justice, that wrath, and that anger with that mercy, that grace, and that compassion. And after we've experienced this, too often all we want is this on others. So God is asking Jonah, is this really what you want? Is that really what you're asking for? For me to change my character, to change who I am. You see, what Jonah doesn't understand is if God 
acts thus to the Ninevites, how much harsher will he have to deal with Jonah? And that final reference to the animals? Well, the Ninevites had only a childish, very basic understanding of morality and wickedness. The animals had none. They are not morally guilty at all. The contrast between God's mercy and Jonah's, between God's kindness and Jonah's, it could not be more poignant. Well, the story ends here. God has the final word. The word of the Lord has come. Nineveh responded in humility and repentance. Jonah the prophet, Jonah's another story altogether. We don't actually know what came of Jonah. It may seem reasonable to presume that Jonah eventually repented and ensured that this account was preserved, but we don't know. It ends without an answer from Jonah. Jewish writers and teachers have created different traditions. Some saying that Jonah immediately after this repented, fell on his face, prayed according to God's mercy and his compassion. But ultimately, these are just hopeful theories. They're hopeful because we want to know that there's hope for Jonah because we see too much of ourselves in Jonah. And ultimately, any theory, any attempt to guess at Jonah's response completely misses the point. There's a reason Jonah's answer is not recorded. There is a reason the story ends here. And when we try to guess at Jonah's answer, at Jonah's response after this final word, when the book is closed, when we try to fill in the white space, we neglect this important purpose. And the purpose is this. For every reader, every listener to the book of Jonah to ask, how will I respond? How will you respond when God's mercy and compassion are not distributed the way they think that you think it should be? How are you going to respond when the events, the circumstances, the trials, even the blessings that God brings into your life and to the lives of those around you do not measure up to your standards? Are you going to respond as someone who thinks it all revolves around you? This question left hanging at the end of Jonah, the question that forces introspection within each of us, is a question that ultimately prepares us for the gospel of the New Testament. The God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, there is a Jonah lurking inside of each of us, a selfish, self-centered person who thinks salvation Deliverance, mercy from God should be lavishly distributed to ourselves, maybe to our family members, and we rejoice over that. But in turn, we want a strict standard of judgment and justice and punishment for others. Jesus tells a parable of workers in a vineyard who are hired at different times of the day, some at sunup, some right before sundown. And when hired, all agree to work for the same wage. And at the end of the day, they all receive the same wages, the wages that they were promised, whether they had worked from sunup to sundown or from the final hour, just that final hour of the day. Now, be honest, if you were hired early in the morning, would you not be a little upset at the generosity of this landowner, even if you received the wage that you had agreed to? Here's the hard truth. That's the Jonah in you. Why should you begrudge the generosity of God? 
especially when he has not withheld any good thing from you. Jonah experienced remarkable love and mercy from God, resurrecting him from the watery depths, preserving him in the belly of a great fish. And yet Jonah still wants to keep this grace, this mercy, and this compassion of God to himself. Now I know some of you are sitting here saying that you are no Jonah. But let me ask, when was the last time you shared the news, the good news of the gospel? When was the last time you labored to rescue sinners from the fires of hell by proclaiming the word of God? If you're struggling to answer that question, or if it's been a while, you're not as different from Jonah as you might think. You are sitting on your hill waiting for Nineveh to burn. We all have Jonah-like propensities. We all approach circumstances, events, and actions of life with biases. We view the world from our own perspective. We tend to think that we possess the correct view. We are the arbiters of what is right and true. Simply put, we act as if the world really does revolve around us. And some of you have likely been sitting here these past several weeks asking, what does this have to do with me? What does God's pursuit of Jonah and Jonah's stubborn sin mean for me some 3,000 years later? Hopefully this morning that has come into better focus. But there's another aspect to consider with regard to our own connection to this story. Have we not been told by the writer of Hebrews that God deals with us as sons and daughters? That the Lord disciplines and reproves those whom he loves? And should we not learn from the example of Jonah how to respond when disciplined? Not by way of emulation or following his example, but running as fast as we can the other direction. Instead of fleeing with Jonah to Tarshish, turning around and fleeing back to God. And can we not rejoice that we have a God, a Father, who will not let us go astray? Who will not let us continue in sin without discipline? Who will pursue us like God pursued Jonah? Who will go to extreme measures to bring about repentance in our lives? As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not joyful, but sorrowful. We might want to fit in a few other words, painful, unnecessary. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So let us respond the way we wish Jonah had responded. Let us respond in repentance quick to bend, quick to obey when the word of the Lord comes into our lives because it has. Let's pray. Father, as we close out our study in the book of Jonah, we give you thanks that you would allow us to bear witness through this study to your grace, your mercy, and your compassion. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to root out those Jonah-like propensities in our lives, to confess them for what they are as sin, to not stubbornly and silently dig in our heels, to not turn around and walk out of the room in a fit of anger, 
but to be like the king of Nineveh, cast aside every semblance of pride, stepped down from his throne, sat in ashes, and repented. Father, help us to do that. Help that to be the mark of our lives. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who have not repented, who have not bowed their knee to you, may they understand the judgment that does await them. But Father, you have been gracious. You have been merciful. You have been patient. You have allowed them to hear your word. And as long as it is today, there is time to repent. And we praise you for that. Help us to model that in our lives. In your name, amen.